0: We're going to be back in Revelation chapter 11 uh, this morning. Revelation chapter 11. Of course, we're going through the whole book of Revelation under the title, The Vindication of the Lord and His People. And we've come to this chapter in Revelation 11, which I'm treating under the title, The Lord's Merciful Witnesses. And uh, we took two different Lord's Days most of you remember, uh, to work through this text, just really looking at the big picture of where this text fits in the context of all of Scripture, everything that God is doing to call the, the Jews his people and to help The nations know him through his people and eventually bringing them into their kingdom as we see in Revelation chapter 20. This is a pivotal point in the book of Revelation. And so we are going to begin working through now the specifics of this text. And we'll take a couple of Lord's days to do this, and I trust it will be a blessing to all of us as we work through it. So let's begin here reading in Revelation chapter 11. We'll begin with the first three verses, where John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, the goyim, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, that's three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,200, uh, I should say, 60 days. That's, an, again, three and a half years, roughly, clothed in sackcloth. So let's pause here for just a moment. And remember, John is told here to measure the Jewish temple which, if we read biblical prophecy in the Old Testament and uh, what Paul mentions in the New Testament, this temple will one day be rebuilt. And the Jews will come back to it worshiping there. And even coming before the altar would suggest that they're bringing sacrifices. And the site of the temple, when it is rebuilt, will be near the vicinity of the Alaska Mosque, which stands there right now, and the nearby shrine called the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is that iconic golden dome that you see whenever you look at a picture of the skyline of Jerusalem. That's the old city part that you're looking at there with the new city part in the background. Everybody recognizes that gold dome. But the Alaska Mosque is in the same area. You don't notice it immediately because it sort of blends in, but it's actually right there. And I'll show you another perspective here where you can see both the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque together. The violence that we've been hearing about this week as we've been watching the news and trying to discern through different news sources what actually is happening uh, in Israel, that violence broke out right here on this site. We're uh, closer to the Alaska mocks because uh, the Israelis and the terrorist group of Palestinians known as Hamas, they often get into a confrontation right here on this very site. This is nothing new. In fact, sadly, it's quite normal because both Jews and Muslims consider this site to be among the most holy places on earth, but for different reasons. The Muslims hold the site sacred because of their prophet Muhammad. They believe that the Alaska Mosque is the place Muhammad traveled to from Mecca. And they believe that the dome of the rock enshrines the very place where Muhammad ascended up to heaven. That big golden dome is covering the top of a big rock. And this is what it looks like on the inside. The place where Muhammad supposedly ascended. The Jews also think this place is sacred, but for another reason. They believe this is where Abraham sacrificed or nearly sacrificed his son, Isaac. This very rock and many of them also believe that this is the foundation stone for the temple you see that the complex you're looking at here is the place where the Jewish temple once stood before it was destroyed by Rome in AD 70 And there are many Jews who long to see this temple rebuilt on this very spot. And they've been preparing for years and years everything they can up to the point of building it. But before this happens, before it's built, some believe that the Alaska Mosque on the left and the Dome of the Rock on the right will have to be torn down or eliminated some way. That is why this sacred space is a point of tension. Tension. Between Muslims and Jews, both claiming it as their own, and violent physical conflict often breaks out every couple of years or so. If you watch the news, and sometimes the news makes a big deal about it, sometimes they don't make a big deal about it. I mean, if rockets starting to fly, they can't ignore that, so they have to report it. But but usually this goes on, and you see it as a news story, kind of down the way. But this happens a lot. There's a skirmish there on this site, and oftentimes some Muslims or some Jews or both lose their lives on this site in the skirmish. But this past week, there were several converging events politically going on that I'm not going to go into. Some of you know about this area anyway. Uh, It made the tensions a lot higher than normal. And the people of Hamas... Who are confined by the Israeli government to live in an area along the coast of Israel called the Gaza Strip. And, and they're confined there because Hamas, their goal is to eliminate all Israelites. And so they've had to confine them and keep them sort of trapped in this land area. And all they can do is, is fire rockets out into the open air. And, and when we were over there, we actually were in a little village right along the side of the border of the Gaza Strip. And, uh, so, and uh, they actually showed us some rockets that, that weren't destroyed. In fact, that week, or the week beforehand, one of the tops of the houses got blown off uh, in that little village because Gaza had sent some rockets. They just do this every once in a while. Or they send up these hot air balloons with rockets on it, and they, they shoot them down somehow, and the rockets drop in the field, and they set the fields on fire. They're doing this all the time. Every couple of weeks, this will, this will go on. But they haven't before, for a long time, fired on major metal. Uh, metropolises like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and that is why the Israeli government, when that happens, they will respond deftly and and definitely, and they will they will defend themselves, and that is what is going on in Israel right now and so we need to do what the Bible says we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and right now that means pray that Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ and that Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ and pray for the Christians over there who are sharing the gospel but for our purposes this morning one way or another the Jews are going to have their temple back on this site I don't know how it's going to happen but if we read Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 and Second Thessalonians 2 correctly, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's, it's going to happen. And John, in his vision of the future, is told to measure this temple. The measuring of the temple and its worshipers is the way that the Lord is singling out his chosen people during this time of the tribulation giving them special attention. Because we notice that John is instructed in verse 2, don't measure the courtyard. Because that is area surrounding the temple, that's going to be overrun by the Gentiles during this time period. And the Lord's focus is not on them. It is on his chosen people, the Jews at this time, just like the Lord's focus was on his chosen people the first time he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In the gospels, remember what he said to his disciples? Go nowhere among the Gentiles and do not enter the town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the gospel was going to come through the Jews, but if God's people themselves were not right, then they couldn't be that light to the nations. Salvation to the world was promised through the Jews way back in Genesis 12 where God told Abram, I will make of you a great nation and through you and your offspring, all the other nations of the earth will be blessed. But after many failed attempts of a righteous king with a righteous kingdom that would be a light to the nations, God's chosen people rejected their king, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus completes the mission that he came to accomplish, the mission needed to bring into the kingdom those who would follow him by providing a way for the hearts of the subjects of the kingdom to be saved through his blood so that the subjects of the kingdom would be righteous. And then he died. To make this possible and rose from the dead. And remember, we walked through this in the last couple of weeks when we looked at this text. What was supposed to happen after Jesus' resurrection, according to Old Testament prophecy, was judgment coming on the world and the conquering of Jesus' enemies as he returned and established his kingdom. But God did something instead that no one was expecting. He suspended the final judgment and coming kingdom for a time in order to allow the nations to come to him by faith, just like the Jewish nation was supposed to be accomplishing all along. And instead of a kingdom, the Lord has been building his church, And through the church, the glorious light of the gospel of Christ has gone out through the world. But we are still waiting for that kingdom to come. And this is the story Revelation unfolds for us in the midst of final and terrible judgment on the world. Jesus is going to return, Revelation 19, and he's going to establish his reign for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20. And the vision that John is being shown in the book of Revelation has brought us to the very brink of that coming. In chapter 10, remember, there's the declaration made by the strong angel there will be no more delay there is one final angel that needs to blow one final trumpet and when that happens all of these plagues will be released in rapid succession and while the earth is still rocking and reeling in the throes of judgment the Lord bursts through the clouds with his saints conquers his remaining enemies and sets up his kingdom that's about to happen at this point in Revelation even though we're several chapters from the end the prophecy of Revelation has brought us to this time of anticipation. I, I, I thought of it this week as an archer drawing a bow and just waiting. If, you, if you're drawing a compound bow, you, know, you can get it back there, and then you can rest for a while. You know? But once you let that string go, that's flying. Well, I think of it more as a bow where you know, it's, it's tense. It's, it's here, and you're holding it, and you're waiting for it to go. If, if you feel that way when you're reading Revelation at this point, that's the right feeling. It's about to happen. Well, what is the Lord Lord waiting for? He's waiting until one last time his people are called to repent. And notice the connection between verses 1 and 2 and verse 3. He says, measure the temple and the worshipers. Don't measure the Gentiles. And then he says, and I will send my two witnesses. I will send them to the Jews during this period, right before the end, calling them one last time to salvation. This doesn't mean that the gospel is not preached to anybody else in the world, by the way. Even Jesus preached to Gentiles and and rescued Gentiles in his ministry. But these are two witnesses specifically given to the Jews. We've seen the biblical and historical significance of this moment in the two previous sermons this morning. I want to begin to focus our attention on the witnesses themselves and their ministry because I think it has great implications for us and our ministry. This is what John says about their ministry, picking up the reading in verse 4. And let's finish reading the text, then we'll go back and look at it. He says, these witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit or the abyss that we'll look at in more detail later on will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, but it's the place where their Lord was crucified. It's Jerusalem. For three and a half days, Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, it goes without saying that these two witnesses are highly unique. I mean, this is not your typical evangelism campaign that we're reading about here, Right? These two men are granted, the text says, this power and authority by the Lord for this particular time. And yet, if we step back and consider their ministry, we find striking similarities between their calling as the Lord's witnesses and our calling as the Lord's witnesses. And it is that similarity that I'd like us to focus on this morning as we study this text under the title, The Lord's Merciful Witnesses. So here is our, our takeaway from the text. The Lord calls and gives authority to these men in particular to be His special witnesses and preach the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we can say that a divine ministry to reach the lost of Israel is given to the Lord's two witnesses. But as we consider their ministry, It also instructs and encourages us in our own ministry, I think, in four vital areas. And as we look at these four vital areas, uh, we'll find them here in this text. A divine ministry to reach the lost of Israel is given to the Lord's two witnesses, instructing and encouraging us in our own ministry in four vital areas. Here's the first one. We'll see the mission of the Lord's witnesses. Characteristically... That is the only one we're going to cover this morning. But there's four, okay? So there's always next week, right? Number two, the authority of the Lord's witnesses. You, you see that in the text. Wow, what kind of authority do they have? How does that apply to us? We'll also see the suffering of the Lord's witnesses. The beast wages war on them and kills them. But then we will see the victory of the Lord's witnesses. Not only do they rise from the dead, they recapitulate the resurrection, showing that the beast cannot touch them. I mean, I I love this part of, of the narrative because what do you do with a martyr who won't stay martyred, who won't stay dead? And then in the end, there are people who give glory to God. That's the victory of the Lord's witnesses, and that's where we're heading. Nothing can touch us for good if we are the Lord's witnesses. So let's begin this journey looking at the Lord's witnesses just with this first consideration this morning, the mission of the Lord's witnesses. What has God called them to do? What is their goal? Well, this mission is never explicitly stated in the text, but there are vital clues in the text that help us to understand what these men have been called to do. First, quite obviously, they are called the Lord's witnesses. And later on in verse 7, it says, when they have finished their testimony, the word witness and the word testimony are versions of the same Greek word, marcher or martyria. So a witness is one who testifies or gives a testimony. And notice that the Greek word is curiously similar to the English word that we all know. Martyr. What is a martyr? A martyr is one who dies for his faith. He dies for his beliefs. Is that what a witness actually is then? One who dies for his beliefs? Now, now pay attention here. No. it, It would actually be misusing language, the Greek language, to say it means you die. That's not what the word martyr means. It means a witness. However, it is very important for us to note that this word, witness or martyr, came to be associated with dying for your faith, because that's what so many Christian witnesses did in the early church. The only reason this word, this Greek word, which has come into our English use, has come in not as witness, but as one who dies for his witness, is because of Christianity. It was common to die for your faith. But the word witness did not originally mean martyred. It's actually a forensic term. It belongs to the courtroom. If you were called as a witness, you had to present evidence by way of public testimony in order to establish the truth. After his death and resurrection, Jesus called his disciples to be witnesses. Remember, Jesus had been tried and wrongfully condemned and crucified but he was vindicated in the resurrection. He was shown to be in the right. He was shown to be the son of God. And so he appears to his disciples and he calls them to take this fresh evidence of his death and resurrection that he can atone for sins into the world. And so he says to his disciples in Luke 24, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. You were there. You saw it. You're beholding me alive. Go preach this news. Share the story of the witness. And when before his ascension, the disciples came and said, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom? I mean, remember, that's what they're waiting for. This this is what should happen next if we're following Old Testament prophecy. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, you're not supposed to know when the kingdom is actually going to come, but before the kingdom arrives, this is what's going to happen. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses carrying this evidence to the world in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what these witnesses are doing. They're preaching to the Jewish people in in Revelation 11, in their day, that Christ, their Messiah, came and was crucified for them and rose again. And they're calling upon the Jews, even as they worship in the temple, to see the futility of their sacrifices And to turn from their sin and embrace the true and better sacrifice for their sin. It's really sort of a reset of what was going on in first century preaching before the temple was destroyed. But there's another clue that gives us an even fuller sense of their mission. Not only does the Lord call them my witnesses, he also says in verse 3, you will prophesy. Well, what does this mean? You will prophesy. Well, prophecy can simply mean to preach truth that's already known. It's, it's true that in some context it can have that meaning. But I'll tell you what, most often when you see this word prophesy in the Bible, it has the sense of revealing something that is unknown, especially something that is going to happen in the future but hasn't taken place yet. So what are these witnesses prophesying about? I think it's pretty obvious, Given the context in which they're preaching, they're preaching to the Jews about the imminent return of their king and the conquering of those who are against him and establishing his kingdom just as he promised. And The Jews who are in Israel right now, who are unbelieving Jews, they're still waiting for this Messiah. They're still waiting for this kingdom. And these witnesses are saying, he's about to come And he's going to establish this kingdom. Their prophetic message is probably very similar to that of John the Baptist, who said to the Jews in his day that when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And we looked at this statement in context. Those who received him will receive the gift of the Spirit, and those who reject him will experience his fiery wrath. You would think that the Jews in Revelation 11 who heard these two witnesses preach would be listening very, very carefully because there are visual aids going off all around them, right? I mean, they've already experienced cosmic judgment on the earth. If we're following the timeline right, for three and a half years, perhaps while their temple is being rebuilt, there have been worldwide bloodshed and famine and pestilence and a general foreboding of judgment on the earth. And during the days of the preaching of these two witnesses, they have experienced perhaps some of the trumpet judgments from chapters 8 and chapter 9. Oceans turning to blood, water poisoning people all over the globe, the vegetation being destroyed, lights in the sky being dimmed. Maybe they had also witnessed the torture of the demon locusts in Revelation 9 or the hideous creatures who bring death to people in that chapter. And if that isn't enough, remember the power and the authority these witnesses have? They have their own power granted to them from the Lord. As we read about in verses 5 and 6, they can strike the earth with plagues and turn water to blood and stop rain from falling. Their powers have implications for the heavens, for the, for the water, and for the earth and they can call down fire against their enemies, you would think the Jews would be overwhelmed by the evidence of the truth of the testimony of these witnesses and come rushing to believe that Jesus, their king, is really about to come, glancing toward the darkening sky, expecting him to burst through the clouds at any moment. But remember what happened when the Messiah himself came, cleansing lepers, healing the lame, feeding the hungry, healing the blind, even raising the dead. And yet, as John says in his gospel, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Nevertheless, the mission of these Witnesses is to testify of the death and resurrection of Christ and to prophesy of the soon coming kingdom. And there's another clue that should not escape our notice. The witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth. Now, why would that be worth mentioning? Well, for one, it connects them with the Old Testament prophets because sackcloth was often the clothing of the prophets of the Old Testament. It emphasizes the fact that these witnesses are chosen to go to their people. They look like their own Old Testament prophets. But sackcloth also symbolizes something that I think is central to the mission of these witnesses. I think this is really important this morning to consider. The wearing of sackcloth was a sign of mourning. We know this from reading the Old Testament. When people wanted to express great anguish, they would put on sackcloth and cover their head with ashes. And and we still use that expression jokingly. I've never seen anybody put on sackcloth and cover their head with ashes, okay? But, But sometimes I hear people say, okay, I will repent in sackcloth and ashes, you know? And they're just joking about that. But it's a biblical reference. People really did that. Now, Let me just tell you, because I'm interested in this subject. I got interested in it over the weekend. Um, Sackcloth is not like gunny sack or burlap or anything like that. Sackcloth was actually made from long, coarse hairs of uh, a goat, for the most part, a black goat. That's why the reference earlier in Revelation 6 that the sun became black as sackcloth, it's because of the black hair uh, of the goat. But also, long-haired camels were often used, Of uh, the hair from them, to make this material. So, it was uncomfortable. You wouldn't want to wear this material. But in a culture where they used everything they possibly could, they found a use for almost everything. They would never discard anything hardly at all. They would make something out of everything. They would, they would use this as sacks. And so the cloth became sackcloth because the only use for it commonly was to make sacks with it. So to wear this material, to actually put it on and be uncomfortable, was to debase yourself, was to show great humility or sorrow. Many of you remember that John the Baptist came wearing what? It says camel hair. Well, this is a sackcloth. And Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8 as wearing a garment of hair. That's sackcloth. And these prophets underlined their message to their people by showing great personal mourning and humiliation. Now think about it for a moment. These two witnesses are not mourning for themselves. They're in Christ, walking with him. They have hope of eternal life. I mean, the beast even comes up from the abyss and and kills them. And they rise from the dead. They have nothing to worry about in the big picture. They are the Lord's witnesses. Why do they go around underscoring their witness with this mourning, with this sorrow? Because they're not mourning for themselves. They're mourning for their people. They're mourning because of their people's sins. They're mourning because of the judgment that's going to come upon the world of those who do not repent and turn to Christ. I mean, he literally refers to Jerusalem by the name Sodom and Egypt in verse 8. Did you catch that? Sodom and Egypt... Uh, it are, are terrible things to call the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, right? Sodom is the stereotypical city known for its great wickedness in the Old Testament. It's the city from which we derive the word sodomite and sodomy, which is unnatural sexual sin, an utterly debased kind of sin. And Egypt is the nation that is known most for enslaving God's chosen people and oppressing them. And what he's saying here is that the people have become so much like the world around them, so apostate that they resemble the most depraved sinners who oppress and persecute the people who belong to God in this time period. And these witnesses mourn. They mourn for the sin of their people. And they demonstrate to their people that they ought to be mourning too. And coming to God in faith and embracing the son. That there is nothing to celebrate until they turn from their sin because judgment is coming. And the mission of these two witnesses is to preach the gospel and bear witness to the truth and warn of soon and coming final judgment and to call the people to repentance. And they are willing to spend their lives, think about it, they're willing to spend their lives for this mission and go without personal comfort in order to reach the hearts of these sinful people. But there's one final clue as to their mission. These witnesses are called, in verse 4, two olive trees and two lampstands. And and not just two olive trees and lampstands, as it says here on the screen. In the text, it says, the two olive stands and the two lampstands. And it's a very curious reference, especially because John is told this with, with the definite article as if he should already know what this means. And we're left scratching our heads. Well, this appears to be a reference to a vision in Zechariah chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles there and want to follow along. And of course, I'll, I'll put most of the text here on the screen like I'm, I'm doing here. But we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 4 for a second because we have to dip into the Old Testament to understand this illusion. And it's important to know for understanding the two witnesses. Now, as you're turning to Zechariah chapter 4, let me give you a little bit of context here. In, in Zechariah... There's a remnant that was in captivity in Babylon, and then Persia took over Babylon. So they're in Babylon, and they're in Persia, God's people. Only a small remnant of those people actually returned. The rest of them stayed behind. They returned to Jerusalem under the control of the Persian government to rebuild their city and their temple. They had been away for a long time, but they had come back, and they had been back for about 20 years when you read Zechariah 4. So they didn't just get back. They've been there for a while now. They've had kids. They've started to grow again as a people. And they came back on the promise that God would restore them to their glory. All the Old Testament prophecies about the coming kingdom, and God's going to restore them and give them a new heart. And he's going to take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And all these things are going to happen in the, the, finally in, in the kingdom. They're expecting that. And they come back excited. And Ezekiel wrote about this magnificent temple that we constructed. Jeremiah told them that God was going to make a new covenant with them and write his law on their hearts and they would all know the Lord. So they come back thinking this nation is going to be restored and their spiritual vitality is going to soar. They come back with their king, Zerubbabel. Now, he's not allowed to be a real king, okay, because he's under the Persian government. And they would, they would probably bring him back and put him in prison if he tried to style himself as a king. But he's at least their governor. That was okay with them. So Zerubbabel, who's in the direct line of Jesus Christ, he's, he's, one of, he's in the direct line of David. He's there governing them, and Joshua is their high priest. And Zerubbabel and Joshua are two huge figures in the prophecy of of Zechariah that we have to understand. So Joshua, the high priest, is ruling over the people spiritually, and Zerubbabel is ruling over them politically. But after 20 years or so, it becomes apparent that this great grand restoration of their temple and their kingdom is not coming yet for some reason. They put the foundation of the new temple down. And if you read, I believe, in Ezra, there are people who are cheering because they're so happy the foundation's there. And then in the crowd, there are people who are wailing, they're weeping. And Ezra said, you can't tell the difference between people who are wailing and people who are, who are cheering because they were both very loud. Because the old, the old ones remembered the glorious temple and they're looking at this foundation. Have you ever built a house before and you lay the foundation and you're like, okay, I know the square footage of this house we're about to build, but this looks really tiny. Yeah, it, it's true. It already, a foundations already do that when you just have the foundation there. But they're looking at this thinking, there's no way the magnificent temple Ezekiel's talked about is going to be here. And they're thinking, it's not going to happen. We're not going to get this kingdom and this temple back. And they're very discouraged. And they stop working very hard to return to the kingdom and to rebuild the temple. And they start to rebuild their own homes. And they start to fall away from the Lord spiritually. And in the meantime, there are enemies around them that are discouraging them, trying to keep them from building in the first place. So they're not following the Lord like they should, and they're spiritually discouraged. And so the Lord sends them Zechariah to address this very situation and to encourage their governor, King Zerubbabel, and to encourage their high priest, Joshua And he says to them in chapter 1, verse 17, my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. It's going to happen, God says. And in Zechariah 2, he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst again, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion, and the holy land will again choose Jerusalem. All that I've said is going to happen, he says. And God begins to give Zechariah these visions full of metaphors to reveal to him how he will restore his people. And that brings us to Zechariah chapter 4. And I'm going to start in verse 2. I'm going going to skip a lot of text here that that we we could talk about to to fully understand the olive trees and the lampstands, but this is enough to to understand what he's saying in Revelation 11. Starting in verse 2, the angel said to me, what do you see? I said, he says, I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each side of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I'm going to pause here. A lot of artists have tried to render this vision in, in Zechariah 4, some better than others. But the idea is that the olive trees stand on either side of this lampstand with the seven flames, and the olive trees are giving the oil to the lamps, which is what they would burn with. They would burn with this olive oil. Without the oil, there's no flame. and Without the flame, there's no light. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the scripture, the source of life and light. So just a little later in the chapter, Zechariah asked the angel what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Literally, the text reads, these are the sons of fresh oil. That's what it says in Hebrew. The sons of fresh oil. No doubt, He is speaking here of the two anointed leaders of Israel at that time. Joshua the high priest, who appears in Zechariah 3, by the way, we skipped that chapter, and Zerubbabel the king, who appears to be mentioned in this chapter. They held these anointed offices, and God would often Anoint his leaders with the Holy Spirit when they assumed their offices. David was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Remember how that happens in First Samuel chapter 15 or 16. The Holy Spirit leaves Saul and he comes upon David. So the message of Zechariah is that God was giving these two leaders to the nation of Israel, gifted with the Holy Spirit at a time when their nation was in spiritual decline to be a light to their people, calling uh, calling them back to God in two ways. First, calling them back to obeying the word of God. That was the function of the king, Zerubbabel. And calling them back to fellowship with God, which was the function of the priests, Joshua. And that is what John is being told here in Revelation chapter 11. He's not being told these two witnesses are like the resurrected figures of Joshua and Zerubbabel. But what He's saying is that these two witnesses function in the same way as Zerubbabel and Joshua functioned at their time. These two witnesses are like two lampstands shining forth the light of truth in a dark time, fueled by the Holy Spirit. And their mission is to call the people to obey the Lord and to come into fellowship with him. So if we take all of these clues that are in the text about their mission and put them together. Here's what we come up with. Their mission is to gravely and earnestly call lost people to trust in the death of Christ for their sins and His resurrection so that they will know and obey the Lord, escaping His imminent wrath and preparing themselves to enter His kingdom. Now, I said that the ministry of these two witnesses informs and encourages us in our own ministry. And if you look closely at this mission statement, which I've derived this from the clues we have in the text, I think you will find in this a very similar mission statement that we embrace. Because when it comes to our mission as the church to obey the Great Commission, taking the gospel to the world we are also called to gravely and earnestly call lost people to trust in the death of Christ for their sins and his resurrection so that they will know and obey the Lord, escaping his imminent wrath and preparing themselves to enter his kingdom. For everyone who is saved will enter the kingdom one way or the other. Those who survive the tribulation period as believers in Christ will either enter into it, And and we who believe before the rapture of the church, we will reign with Christ in the kingdom. But if there is one part of this mission statement I would like to, in conclusion, focus our attention on this morning as we close, it is the part that says we gravely and earnestly call people to salvation. And the idea that they are escaping this imminent wrath Because you know what? It's true. We get very relaxed in our culture, in our society, and I wonder how grave and earnest we really are in our activity, thinking all the time, how can we use this to reach somebody for Jesus Christ? Understanding that the Lord could return at any moment, setting in motion the judgments That will bring us to the final judgment. Are we really urgent about it? Does it ever consume our thinking? Do we feel this tension like the drawn bow waiting for the arrow to fly to be released at any moment? When I was in Israel a couple of summers ago, it was striking to me how many soldiers there were walking around all the time with assault rifles. They were always in pairs, or threes, or fours, and what really captured my attention is that they were so young-looking, most of them. You know why? Because as soon as they turn 18, all of the Israeli children, boys and girls alike, they have to complete two years of military service, which is really an amazing master plan, if you think about it. It means that all of the young people in that country receive incredible training And come out in two years very disciplined and very responsible. Can you imagine a nation full of children like that? Which means that they are much more productive in the workforce, and they all know how to defend themselves if they're under attack. But this means that there are a lot of 18- and 19-year-old kids walking around the streets of Jerusalem at night. We'd We'd walk the old city quite often at night, and they're always walking around, patrolling, and they're not marching with a serious attention. They're talking, and sometimes they're texting, and they're strolling along, and they're laughing, and you could take a selfie with them. You know, they're carrying their assault rifles. They got it slung over their back, or they got it on their shoulder, and they're just walking along, and it's a little unnerving until you get used to it. It's like a bunch of college freshmen walking around fully, uh, with fully loaded weapons, uh, very friendly, but trained to kill, all right? That's that's what you. Feel. Feel like. But we also saw these same Israeli soldiers at checkpoints when there was heightened security and there was nothing casual about them. They were all business. And these men and women, some of them very young, were well-trained. And you knew to be on your best behavior. It just, you just knew instinctively they were in charge. So they know what they're doing. And a number of us have kept in touch with with some of them, and there's at least one of these Israeli soldiers that we we message all the time. He's in a group chat, and he's kept up with us over the last couple of years. Uh, And his name is Eli, and Eli and his sister both did their military training with their other friends, and they're still in their 20s. And Eli is not an active military guy right now, but he could be called up any moment. He sent me pictures this week of his apartment complex after it was hit by a missile from the Gaza Strip. He said, everybody survived. It's okay. There was a lot of smoke inhalation, but everybody in the apartment building was okay. And he told us in, this, uh, in, in, the, in the conversation that happened that at least 9,000 reserve soldiers were being called up for active duty. And his name was not among the first 9,000, but he said, I'm ready to go any minute, And I think that that comparison illustrates for us the attitude that we have to have when it comes to our mission. We treat the call to share the gospel sometimes as if we're in peacetime, casually, without a sense of urgency, swinging around our weapon. We know what to do. We we could be called to action if needed, but we act as if there's all the time in the world But really, it's not peacetime we're living in. And it never will be peacetime until the prince of peace rules on the throne in Israel. Right now, we are, as it were, in wartime. So it's not a time to be walking around indifferently through the streets, swinging our weapons. It's a time to be at attention, watching for the enemy, calling people to salvation, leading them to safety. That's what these two witnesses are doing in Revelation 11. This is their mission. And we can all take steps of obedience, learning to witness, to share the gospel, and pray for opportunities. We're doing that right now as a church, and it's been a wonderful process so far. But we also need to pray that the Lord will bless us with a sense of urgency, a sense of purpose, as we also serve him as his merciful witnesses. That is the mission of these two witnesses, and Lord willing, we'll continue next week and continue to look at what their witness, what their mission says to us about what we should be doing as God's people today. Father, thank